Uh, Matthew chapter seven, if you will stand with me for the reading of God's word, we'll read this, we'll pray, and then we'll dive into it together. Um, This is what it says. Matthew seven, I'm going to read verses one through six. It says this, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What a wonderful morning we have in store. Uh, Let's pray together, and uh, we'll dive into God's word. Lord, Father, we thank you. for today, God, we thank you for Mother's Day and just the a day set aside where we can honor and cherish and celebrate motherhood. God, we lift up all of the women in our body, um, regardless of where they fall on the scale of motherhood. Um, God, we thank, we're thankful for um, just the value of a mom and uh, all the ways that motherhood has blessed humanity, has blessed us individually and personally. And uh, God, we pray um, for grace um, in the midst of pain and sorrow and loss when it comes to motherhood as well. God, we're grateful that you are sufficient, um, that your grace is sufficient to meet us in our need. Um, Where we are weak, God, by your grace, you make us strong. So help us to lean on you and depend on you. God, give us humble hearts to hear your word, um, to obey it, to see it clearly. God, your spirit is in us to help us interpret this word, and your word is in front of us that your spirit wrote. So God, help us to, um, to behold you as we just sang. God, we just want to be a people who continually behold you in your word. Um, God, thank you for all that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 1884, um, there was this couple um, who had lost their son, and they went and met with um, Charles Elliott, who was the president of Harvard University at the time. 1884, they go and they, they meet with Charles Elliott. They had just lost their son, and they go to the president of Harvard, and they say, hey, we want to establish a memorial for our son. And he says, oh, that's awesome. Um, would you like to you know, create a small scholarship or something like that? Instantly just being, judging these people, you know, based on who they are, based on what they look like. You know, okay, would you like to set up a small scholarship? And they're like, no, we were thinking more like a building. And, um, you know, in disbelief, Charles Eliot kind of dismissed them and was like, you know, I just don't think it's going to work out, like kind of politely backed out of the situation. And come to find out a year later that this couple had gone elsewhere and they had spent $26 million and established the Leland Stanford Junior University Memorial, which we now know as Stanford University. Um, And I tell you that story because poor Charles Eliot just missed out on an incredible opportunity because there's significant things that weigh in the balance when we judge other people. And that's a story about judging someone based on their appearance and judging their wealth and their stuff and their possessions. Uh, This morning, we're going to talk about judging people's behavior and their hearts and their motives and their sins. Um, We're taking it a step further and not just looking at people's, you know, affluence or anything like that. We're looking at Um, motives and hearts and all of those kind of things. Let me just tell you, um, this subject has the potential, this sin, this corrosion in us, um, if it is not properly dealt with by the grace of God and the mercy of God, that, uh, I'm gonna move this over so I don't kick it, but this sin has the opportunity to split and divide and kill churches. This 
judgmental spirit, if not addressed, has the uh, potential to end marriages, um, to end lifelong friendships, to sever relationships between family members. Like if this is not dealt with, um, some of you might be living in the wake of a lot of a series of these events uh, where someone has judged you, has declared you um, wrong, has, has taken your worst moments or your worst mistakes and has defined you by those things. And it has changed relationships forever. Um, so I do want to elevate the importance of what we're going to talk about here. Um, and before we dive into it, let me kind of catch you up, especially if you're a mother in town, if you're visiting, if you're a grandparent, if you're just here and you haven't been um, with us through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, John Stott calls the Sermon on the Mount essentially Jesus's Christian manifesto, where if you want to know what a Christian is, just look at the Sermon on the Mount. And let me ask you, as we kind of review real quick, if someone came to you and said, what is a Christian? What would you say? What would your answer be? What is a Christian? What is Christianity? How would you answer that question? I would hope that you would not go to, well, it means you got to stop doing these things and you can start doing these things and you just get into a list of behaviors, a list of do's and don'ts. That's not Christianity, that's religion. <laughs> and Jesus, if you want to look, I think, you know, we've kind of skinned this cat lots of different ways and summarized the Sermon on the Mount in a lot of different ways. And yes, Jesus is um, contrasting, you know, this outward external do's and don'ts kind of religion of the scribes and the Pharisees with this inward, genuine, true relationship with Jesus of the disciples. But I think he's also just defining what a Christian is. And like Jesus, if you look at back at Matthew chapter five, if someone asked me, what is a Christian? Where would I start? I would start at the heart, heart level obedience. Jesus says, um, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, that believers, we are spiritually bankrupt, that we mourn over our sin. Jesus starts with these heart attitudes of his followers. We're spiritually bankrupt. We realize that when it comes to righteousness, we bring nothing to the table. We bring our sin to the table. We offer nothing more. It's just all of our mistakes, all of our sin, all of our unrighteousness, that we are spiritually bankrupt. Tim Keller says, the only way to be worthy of the gospel is to realize that you're completely unworthy of it, Right? that we're spiritually bankrupt, that we mourn over our sin. We don't like it. We know that there's something wrong with us. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus comforts us through Christ. He has given us his righteousness, his joy, his peace, all of those things. And then what do we do? We hunger and we thirst for more of God's righteousness in our lives. So Jesus starts with the heart beat, the, just the heart's attitude, the heart's posture of his followers. And then he moves into the purpose of his followers in the world. What does he say? That you and I, that believers, we would be salt of the earth that we would share the gospel and through our sharing of the gospel that people would hunger and thirst for God's righteousness in their lives, that we would experience more hunger and thirst for righteousness in our own homes, in our communities, in our families, and that we would be lights in this world. That's what we were called to do, to make disciples of all nations and to go and shine the light of Christ into the world, that people would see our good deeds and they would glorify our Father in heaven. So he starts with the attitude of believers. He moves into kind of the role and the purpose of believers in the world. And then he moves into how we as believers, how we as Christians interpret the Bible, interpret the law. He says, we don't throw it out. We don't depart from it. But Jesus is the fulfillment of it. He came to um, fulfill every dot, every iota, iota, however you wanna pronounce it. He came to fulfill it all. So we don't depart from it. In fact, we heed it, we obey it, we submit our lives to it. And not just what it says, not just the externals, but in, in inward, heart-level obedience, a heart-level righteousness. 
And then what does Jesus do in chapter six? He moves towards these different Christian practices and he gives us examples of how we interpret the law. That we don't just settle for, you know, external, we didn't murder anybody. Good for us. That the original heart of the law was that you and I, that we wouldn't be vengeful towards one another or angry towards one another or hateful towards one another, bitter towards one another. We don't just settle for the fact that we haven't committed physical adultery. But we know in our hearts, we have the tendency to commit adultery all the time to use someone else for our own pleasure, for our own enjoyment, to turn from God and to to worship and to fall in love with other things, other lesser things. So it's not just that we don't wanna commit outward physical adultery, it's that we strive by God's grace to not commit this heart level adultery, that we are people of our word, that we can trust God, we can take him at his word, and because of that, as believers, we have his grace, he takes care of our needs, that we don't have to, to lie and manipulate and take advantage of people and those kind of things, but we let our yes be yes and our no be no. So he moves into those practices, and then he moves into the things that Christians care about, that ultimately, we have all the treasure that we need in Christ. He's the only thing that can satisfy our longings, he's the only thing that can satisfy our souls, so we treasure him, we treasure heavenly things, not earthly things. And it changes our perspective that we try to have a good eye where we see that nothing on this earth can last, but that only the heavenly things will last. So we long for him, we strive after him, we wanna know him more and serve him more, and we don't settle for the earthly things. We, don't, we know we're, we're created and God has redeemed us and saved us for so much more than just acquiring more stuff in a garage. But he's given us an incredible calling to, to be a part of his kingdom work on the earth. And what we care about, as we talked about last week, will determine what we get anxious about. That if you wanna know what your treasure has been this past week, this past month, just think about what you've been anxious about. Because you and I, we get anxious about the things that we care about. I don't get anxious about things that I don't care about. I just don't. But boy, will I get anxious about the things that I treasure. And where our treasure is will determine where our anxieties lie. And we looked at last week that if we have this heavenly treasure, if we are pursuing the things of God in our lives, more of his kingdom, more of his presence, more of the gospel in our hearts, then we won't get anxious about earthly things. We trust God that he'll take care of those needs for us. But instead, we care about, we run after, we pursue, we get anxious about the heavenly things. And now, Jesus has talked about all these different facets of What does it mean to be a genuine believer in Christ? And now he's going to transition to how do we as believers begin to interact with each other? And this is where things have a tendency to go south really, really quickly, doesn't it? So if you look with me at Matthew 7, verse one, he says this, quick verse, short verse, judge not that you be not judged. This is the, hands down, the most famous, most popular, and most quoted verse by non-believers. This is it right here. Judge not that you be not judged. Some of you probably have heard someone say this to you. At the moment you try to you know, make a moral evaluation about something or try to speak into someone's life, try to correct someone, chances are you've probably heard this. Christians say this to each other. I see it all the time online. If someone goes to call out someone who's not preaching a true gospel or something, hey, hey, don't judge or you're gonna be judged. Bible says don't judge especially the non-believing world. As we begin, as believers begin to make moral assessments about things in our culture, about things that are going on in our world, uh, watch out, Christian. The Bible says don't judge. You've pro- chances are you've probably gotten this response before. 
heard celebrities walk around and say, only God can judge me, right? And I wanna say, that's the problem, he will. <laughs> like, that's why we say things, that's why we talk, that's why we want to get your attention. This whole idea of, hey, you can't tell me how to live, only God can judge my life, is a true reality, that one day God will judge your life. And that's why I'm saying something, that's why we wanna talk about it, that's why we wanna bring it up. Because one day all of us will stand before a judge and we need to talk about what that reality will be like. So, but here's what I wanna argue today. This whole idea of don't judge, and that's the end of the story, I think most commentators, most theologians, myself even this morning would argue that that's not the full story. When people come to me and say, hey, the Bible says don't judge, I say yes, but it says so much more than that. It says a lot more than that. In fact, there are actually commands in Scripture where you and I are supposed to judge one another. I would argue that there are some instances in our lives where we are being disobedient and being sinful if we do not judge one another. And don't take my word for it. Let me give you an example. John 7, verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. There it is. Judge with right judgment. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul is talking, he says, and let me just, 1 Corinthians, there's this weird dude in the church doing some weird stuff, and look at what Paul tells the church. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul tells the church in Corinth, make a judgment call. Declare this brother guilty and get him out of here. Few verses later, in this very sermon, we're gonna talk about it in a couple weeks. Matthew 7, verse 15 through 20, Jesus says, beware of these false prophets who are coming, and they're, um, I'll read it to you. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And he says this, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes and figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, lest thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So how in the world are you and I supposed to determine who's a true prophet and who's a false prophet? What's a good tree? What's a bad tree? What's good fruit? What's poisonous fruit? We have to make judgment calls, don't we? That we have to decide, we have to judge is this a true prophet? Is this a false prophet? Philippians 3, Paul tells the church in Philippi to look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. How are we gonna know who those people are? We gotta make a judgment call. We gotta decide who they are. In this very ver passage, verse six, Matthew 7, verse six, Jesus says, don't give what is holy to dogs and don't throw pearls to pigs. How are we supposed to know who the dogs and who the pigs are? We've gotta make judgments. We have to make a judgment call. And this won't be on the screen, but many of you are familiar with Matthew 18, verse 15. When your brother has sinned against you, go and show him his fault. How are we supposed to know, one, if this is our brother in Christ or not, two, if what they did was sinful or not, we have to make judgments. 1 John 4, I mean, this is everywhere in scripture. John in 1 John says, um, test this, the teachings of the prophets, test the spirits and make sure that they're true. How are you and I supposed to know if this is a true statement, if this is a true gospel, if this is a false gospel? We've gotta make judgments. 
If you see how this passage ends, the very one we're gonna look at, what does Jesus say? He says, do some work and then you will be able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He doesn't say, don't call it a speck. You're not the judge. No, he says to remove it, that it would be unloving for us not to. That if our brother or sister is caught in sin, it would be unloving for us to turn a blind eye to it and just let, oh, I'm sorry, I can't judge, can't help. I can't decide if that's good or bad or wrong or right, sorry. It is unloving for us to let someone who has a foreign object in their eye just keep it there and do nothing. Jesus doesn't argue at the end, oh, sorry, only I can call it a speck. You can't, that we have to make judgments. D.A. Carson says this about this passage. I wanna read it to you. Um, Very smart theologian. He says, we will be wise to consider first what this text does not say. It certainly does not command the sons of God, the disciples of Jesus, to be amorphous, undiscerning blobs who never under any circumstance whatsoever hold any opinions about right and wrong. Are we to say nothing about the rights and wrongs of a Hitler, a Stalin, a Nixon? Man, poor Nixon. Like, that's a, that's a tough list. Of adultery, economic exploitation, laziness, deceit, to judge. And here he defines the term. To judge can mean to discern. It can mean to judge judicially. It can mean to be judgmental, to condemn judicially or otherwise. The context must determine the precise shade of meaning. The context here argues that the verse means do not be judgmental. Do not adopt a critical spirit, a condemning attitude. So as we're looking at passages, a good hermeneutical rule, a Bible interpretation rule, is to listen to what the whole Bible has to say about a particular issue. And for me as a pastor to get up here and say, hey, that's all the Bible has to say, just don't do it, would be me not doing my homework and me not giving a full representation of what the scriptures has to say. And I would argue based on the context what Jesus is actually trying to communicate here in this passage. He is not forbidding believers from ever making moral judgments about things that are right and wrong. He's not telling us to turn a blind eye to other people's sins. He is forbidding being judgmental. What Jesus is forbidding is a certain way in which you and I love to judge others. You see, to be judgmental is to intentionally, there's lots of problems with being judgmental, but it's to intentionally to to tear down, to destroy, to be negative. Um, There are lots of things wrong with being judgmental, and two of those are one, is that you and I, we are finite beings, And when you and I, when we decide to be judgmental, we sit on the judge bench and we decide to look at other people and we know their heart, we know their motives, we know what they were thinking, we know the intent of what they were doing and we declare them guilty, we declare them sinful, we declare them a wretch, right? We love to do this all the time and just write people off and define them by their latest sin, their worst sin, their biggest regret, all of the time. Yeah, yeah, I've got some things, but I mean, have you seen what they did? I mean, have you seen how their kids acted today? I mean, what's going on there? Like clearly they don't have things going on. Did you see what she said or how she responded or what they did there? Clearly she's mad. She was clearly trying to get something, right? And we start just assuming people's motives. Like we're this all powerful, omniscient God and we can determine what's going on in people's hearts. 
First problem is we're not that. We don't know people's thoughts and their hearts and their intentions. So one, we're finite, but two, we're fallen. But you and I are just as guilty, and that's the problem. One, we don't know people's hearts, we don't know their thoughts, we don't know their desires, but two, you and I are fallen. And Jesus says this in verse two, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And boy, we are so quick to do this. We are so quick to condemn others, to declare them guilty, to judge others, to shame others, but boy, do we not do that to ourselves. And here's the problem, what Jesus is getting at, is if you and I, if we're gonna sit on the bench and declare ourselves as judge, we also have to be willing to take the stand. Because if I stand up here and stand over someone's life and tell them that I know what's right and wrong and I'm the standard, then I now am held liable. If I declare, hey, I know all that's right and all that's wrong, then now I'm liable for all of my decisions and my actions. And I can no longer say, yeah, sorry, I didn't know that, right? If I'm gonna step on the bench and be the judge, I've also gotta be willing to take the stand. And Jesus is saying that, hey, the, the quickness with which you condemn people, with which you write people off, which with the quickness that I um, attribute and ascribe to someone else's motives and their heart and their attitude is the same quickness and the same measure that's gonna be given to me. Romans 2 says this, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things, don't we? Man, we're so quick to, we know for certain other people's motives. And we are just as guilty. We don't like to show our motive. We, we make excuses for our motives, right? I have reasons for why I sin. You make excuses for why you sin. Boy, do we justify all of this, don't we? But we are very quick to find ourselves guilty. And if we're gonna sit on the bench and be the judge, we have to be willing to take the stand. You and I, we are not God. We do not know people's motives. We do not know the thoughts and the meditations of their heart. And we're just as guilty of the same behaviors. And this is what Jesus is getting at. And I think the key to understanding this text is in these next few verses, in this illustration. Because what Jesus is gonna tell us is that when we put ourselves in the place of the judge and we look down on other people and we condemn the behaviors and the sins of other people and we write them off, we declare them guilty, Jesus is going to give us this picture of it is like showing up, coming to a person who has a speck in their eye and trying to surgically remove it all the while we have a two by four protruding out of our own eye. And this is what he's getting at. And I think the key to understanding it is in these next two verses. So look at verse three. He says this. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So Jesus tells us, we see the speck in ours, or we see the speck in theirs, but we do not notice the log in ours. And how true is that? How much time do you spend looking at other people's behaviors and determining other people's motives instead of looking at your own, right? Boy, are we guilty of this. And I think the key to understanding this sentence is in the verbs. Jesus actually gives it away in the verbs. And in English, you know, we've got 
A few verbs for see, you know, to see, to look, to notice, all those things. In the Greek, you can communicate so much more. You can be a lot more expressive with your word choice. And uh, there's multiple different words for look in the Greek. And what Jesus says here is um, that we see the speck in our brother's eye. It's, it's the word, the normal word for see or to notice. It's, it's the word blepo in the Greek, uh, that we just notice someone else's behavior. But then look at what Jesus says we failed to do. He uses another word for see, but it's a different word in the Greek, and it's the word um, kata noes. And if you kind of split those words apart, the prefix kata means down, and gnosis actually means to know or to study, to think. So what he's saying here is that we notice other people's sins, but what we fail to do is to know down, to meditate on, to carefully look at and consider and observe our own sins. And in fact, I would argue that when you and I, when we're being judgmental, which is what Jesus is condemning here, that we switch the verbs all the time, right? I notice my sin, but boy, I examine everybody else's. Yeah, I've got some issues, right? I've got some things I need to work on, but boy, did you see what they did? Did you see how she talked to him? Did you see the the body language that that couple gave each other? Did you see how their kids acted at church? Yeah, I mean, our kids, you know, they're not perfect, but I mean, did you see what they did? And what do we do, right? We just notice our own issues, barely, but then we meditate on and we carefully consider and we dissect the behavior and the thoughts and the motives of everybody else around us. And Jesus says, this is what you're doing wrong. This is why you're being judgmental. You've missed it, that you and I, Gospel perspective is that we take a hard look at our own sin. And then, yes, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we want to correct one another and you know, exhort one another and encourage one another and come alongside one another and aid and help one another. But Jesus says that you're missing the first step. It's that you and I, we would meditate on and carefully look at and consider our own sin. But we get those verbs backwards all the time. We glance at our sins every now and then, but we inspect the sins of others with a fine-tooth comb, don't we? We know their hearts. We know what they were thinking. We know their motives. We're pretty loose, and we judge ourselves, or as we judge ourselves, but we're very strict with our judgments towards others. And we talk about this often. We all love grace, don't we? When we're the offender, man, I love to preach grace. I love to claim grace, I thank God for grace. When I'm the one who's offended people, let's, let's bring up, man, God is gracious, right? We love grace. Until someone offends me, and then I am no longer a proponent of grace, are we? We all love grace until someone hurts us. And then we want grace for me, but not for thee. I love grace until you hurt me, and then I'm a proponent of you paying for what you've done instead of you getting let off the hook. We judge ourselves very loosely and we judge others very strictly. We know that our motives were good and we just messed up, right? Our sins aren't sins, they're just oopsie daisies, aren't they, right? That we had good motives, we just fell a little bit short. And then we are certain about other people's motives. And we're sure they're bad. We minimize our own sin and we maximize other people's sins. We justify our own sins and we judge the sins of others, right? I have reasons for why I sin. God knows, and I've I've got some reasons why. 
Other people just make excuses for their sins. And do you see how we elevate ourselves and we put ourselves in the place of God? Boy, do we see this all the time, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I messed up and, you know, I'm not perfect, but, like, you know, there's, there's just some reasons why. Them, yeah, they, they're just messed, man, they got a lot of work to do. I see this with the Enneagram all the time, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I said, but I mean, God made, like, I'm, I'm an eight. Like, God made me this way. Like, I, I'm just rude to people and stuff, and, right? And we, we, we give reasons and justification for our own sin. And then we tell other people they're making excuses. And if you're an eight in the room, I'm not offending you, or I, I wasn't intended to offend you. Sorry if I did. Um, but you see what we're doing. And Jesus says this, verse four. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? And here's what's so dangerous, is that you and I can come to another brother or another sister in Christ under this disguise of I'm here to help them. I wanna care for them. I wanna help remove the speck out of their eye when we have not done the hard work of looking at our own lives and looking at our own thoughts, looking at our own sins. And how wicked and how corrupt is it for me to try to feel better about myself by helping you. And meanwhile, um, I'm just trying to tear you down and condemn you and be the judge over you because I haven't done the hard work of looking at my own life. Exalting and feeling better about ourselves by condemning others is a very cheap way to feel good. And Jesus is calling us out here right in this moment. That when we are judgmental, we magnify our own righteousness and we magnify other people's sins. And both are wrong. And what Jesus is saying is we've, we've got the verbs mixed up. We're meditating on the thoughts and the intentions and the behaviors of other people. And we're just, yeah, you know, I'm, a, I'm not perfect, but I mean, look at them, right? They've got a lot of work to do. We just barely notice ours and we focus in on the sins of others. And Jesus says we've got to get the verbs back where they belong that you and I, that the proper way and the right way, the way that you and I will see clearly to come and take the speck out of someone else's eye. Verse five, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You wanna know how to see clearly is you stare at the log for a long time. You stare at the log in your own eye that you and I, think about it, before you went and said something to your spouse that was, you know, a form of correction or edification or just something that you've noticed, something that you're concerned about, before you go and do that, if you would just stop for a minute and look at your own life and look at your own behavior and look at your own motives and look at your own sin, how drastically would that change your demeanor and your tone and your attitude and the way in which you go and speak to that other brother or sister in Christ? And this is what Jesus is saying that if you and I, if we wanna see clearly to come and correct or rebuke or exhort or encourage another believer towards more obedience to Christ, that we first have to meditate on our own sin to see the plank. Gospel perspective is my sin is a plank and your sin is a speck. The judgmental perspective is your sin is a plank and I've got a few specks that I'm working on. But we switch those all the time. And I tell you what, my demeanor, my tone, my posture, my attitude would change if I come to a brother or sister, come to my spouse, come to a family member with a posture that fully examines my own sin, my own shortcomings, 
it would cause me to come to them broken. Instead of coming with condemnation and with stones, when I focus on my sin and all the ways that God and his grace still loves me, I don't come to a brother or sister with stones. I come with the same grace that I've received. And this is what Jesus is getting at as we have to constantly meditate on and look at our own lives. If I'm so much more concerned about the speck in your eye than I am about the sin that's killing me, then I've missed it. But if we would dwell on and think about and consider in light of scripture, in light of the holiness of God, our own sin that is killing us, and then I go and speak to another brother or sister in Christ, my tone changes, my demeanor changes, the words I choose change, my end goal changes. It's not to slander anybody, it's not to guilt anybody. It's to point someone to the physician who can fix the speck in the eye. It's to point others to Christ. And Jesus calls us hypocrites. He says, when you're calling other people's sin a plank and calling yours a speck, you're a hypocrite. And Jesus has used this term multiple times in the sermon. The word hypocrite in the Greek is a combination of the word hupo and krisis. Hupo means under and the Greek word for krisis means to, to speak out or to answer back. And we've talked about this once or twice during this sermon series, um, that this was actually a term for um, plays and playwrights and all of those things back in the first century. That essentially, if you were an actor um, in the first century, there was no you know zoomed in cameras and television shots and all those things where you could see facial expressions. So what they would do is they would grab a mask. So if I'm an actor up here and I'm doing a scene where I'm happy, I reach down and I grab this mask that has a big smile on it and I put it over my face. And then when it's time to do a scene that's sad, I put down the happy mask and I pick up the sad mask and I put it under there. And this was actually a kind of an actor playwright kind of term. And what Jesus is saying here is that when you and I judge ourselves righteous and right and condemn other people because our sins are specks and their sins are planks, then we are hypocrites. We are speaking out from under this mask. Hupo crisis, to call out from under, to speak out from under a mask that I've got all this stuff together and you've got some work to do. That I'm righteous, you're guilty. I'm good, you're condemned. And Jesus says you're speaking out from under this mask, this Facade, it's actually what they called the mask back then. They called it a fake or a facade. And this is what hypocrites are, aren't they? This is what we say, you're being a hypocrite, you're being fake. You're acting righteous, you're declaring yourself righteous and condemning all the people around you. That's being judgmental and that's what Jesus is getting at. We have another word for being fake. It's the word phony, right? Anybody ever called you phony before? The word phoneo in the Greek is just means to speak or, or to to make noise. Um, a telephone is a telecommunication device that sends noise, that sends speech, that sends those things. So what are we saying when someone is a phony? We're saying that they're just noise. They're all talk. There's no substance, right? This is what Jesus is getting at here, that if you and I stand in the place of God, we did, we approach the bench, we get on the bench of the judge, and we look down on other people. And we're righteous, they're not. My motives are good, your motives are not. That we are phonies. And we have neglected to see the plank that is in our own eye. And we're staring at planks in other people's eyes. We've totally missed it. We've got the verbs wrong. We have to put the verbs back where they go. 
the overwhelming majority of our eyes activity should be meditating on God's word and meditating on his holiness and therefore meditating on the fact that we do not measure up. And when I do that, it changes the posture in which I live my life. It changes the attitude in which I approach my conversations and meetings at work and with my spouse, with my family. That if I daily gather around God's word and see his goodness, see his grace, see his kindness, see his holiness, see all the ways that I don't measure up to that and yet he loves me and he's gracious towards me, that will change the way I interact with every single one of you. But if I wake up and I don't read this, I don't be transformed by the renewing of my mind and I start to convince myself that I've just got a few specs that I need to work on, that I've got this figured out, that I've earned this, as soon as you and I, start to convince ourselves that we've earned God's righteousness, we will walk around and expect other people to earn it as well, won't we? We will do it over and over again. As soon as I think I'm good enough and I've earned it, I will walk around and start expecting everyone else to be good enough and to earn it all of the time, all of the time. But the more we focus on our sin, the more we look at the holiness of God and his word, the more grace we will receive and the more grace we will have in our hands as we go and interact with the people around us over and over again. Galatians 6.1, what does Paul say? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. He doesn't say don't be blind to it. He doesn't say don't address it. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then here's the warning, right in line with Matthew 7. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That as I go and I lovingly come alongside someone for their sanctification and for their intimacy with Christ, for the sake of their family and their friends and the people they know, and I'm meditating on my own brokenness and it changes the way in which I go to them, that I'm looking at my own life as I go and talk to this person. And I promise you, if you're doing that, what's gonna come out of your mouth is not condemning, it's not judgmental, it's not I know your motives, it's not you're guilty, you're innocent, it's grace. I think true empathy is sitting with someone long enough and hearing enough of their story and enough of what's going on and enough of their thoughts and their mind and their fears and their worries and their anxieties and their identity that you come to the conclusion that, hey, given all of that, there's a good chance I probably would have made the same decision you did. Given the wicked thoughts of my heart and my pride and my ambitions and my desires, there's a good chance that I probably would have done the same thing. That changes how you interact with someone and talk to them. Jesus is not calling us to be the harsh judge. He's not calling us to be the hypocritical, fake believer who corrects other people when we are neglecting to deal with ourselves. He's calling us to be the loving, humble, generous brother or sister in Christ who recognizes that their only hope is God's grace in their life and it's the only thing we're offering to the people around us in their sin and in their shortcomings and in their mistakes. That's what he's calling us to be. And that way we will correct one another, not as foes, not as competitors, not as enemies, but as loving brothers and sisters in Christ. Our church has to function this way. Our family has to function this way. That 2 Timothy 3, that all scripture is useful for teaching and for rebuking and correcting. 
But boy, there's a way in which we do that. And this is what Jesus is getting at, that us as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would not stand over one another as the judge. We would not be willing to take the stand ourselves first. That's what we have to do. We have to be willing to stand or to to sit on the stand first, to recognize our guilt, to recognize our sin, and then go to one of our brothers and sisters. And then he gives us this warning in verse six, probably the confusing verse for a lot of us. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now the word dogs there, you gotta kind of get your mind into first century culture. Um, dogs in the first century uh, were not Marley and me. Um, they were not beloved. They were not cute and fluffy and furry. They were not domesticated like they are today. Um, this was a derogatory term. This is actually the term that Jews would call unbelieving Gentiles who were hostile towards them. They would call them dogs. Pigs, according to Exodus and Leviticus, were these unclean animals. Pigs, because of their snouts, I think, um, according to Leviticus, were declared unclean. So what Jesus is saying here is he's given us this warning, and I appreciate it in his kindness. He's saying, don't do this with, don't give this thing, don't give these things to dogs and to pigs. Don't give your pearls to the pigs. And then he says this, they will trample them underfoot and attack you. And this is a good warning for us, that as you and I, as we interact with the culture, there's a way that us as believers, especially if you've committed to be a part of this local body and this family, that we're gonna have to do some of this with one another. We're gonna have to care enough about each other to see our own sin and recognize it and humbly and in brokenness come to one another and and love each other enough to speak truth into each other's lives. It's one of the greatest gifts God has given us is us. But there's a warning here that you and I would not do this to unbelievers, to dogs and to pigs, to the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world does not need us to condemn them. They don't. John 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, those that don't believe in the son, they're condemned already. The unbelieving lost world, they don't need you to go and correct their behavior. They need the gospel. They don't need us as believers to stand up in our own self-righteousness that we've somehow figured this out. And now you've got to figure it out too. What they need is humble, broken, our only hope is grace, and we're offering that same grace to you. Here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the unbelieving world needs. Proverbs, Solomon talks about this in Proverbs. He says this in Proverbs 9. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will, he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The true brothers and sisters in Christ will appreciate a genuine, humble, broken, contrite exhortation and correction. And if you and I are in Christ and a brother or sister loves us enough to come alongside of us and humbly and meekly tell us these things, we will appreciate it. But those that aren't in Christ, they won't accept it. In fact, they will get hostile and they will, as Jesus says, they will attack you verbally, you name it. They don't need our correction. They need the gospel. And the only way that you and I will remember how to interact with each other 
and we'll, mem- we'll remember how to interact with the culture as if you and I remember the gospel. And here's the good news of the gospel, that every single one of us, when we take the stand, we rightly and justly are found condemned. We don't have specks. We've got planks. You and I, there is nothing good in us that when you and I take the stand before God, we are rightly, according to his holiness and his righteousness, we are condemned. But the good news of the gospel is this, that the only one who is all-powerful, who is infinite, not finite, who is not fallen, he is without sin, the only one who has the moral authority to judge, steps off of the bench and steps onto the stand in your place and in my place, and he was condemned willingly so that you and I could go free. He paid our fine, he did the time, and he set us free. And now, when you and I repeatedly sin, one day when we stand before the Father and stand before the actual judge, Jesus will be standing there on the stand saying, I paid for that, I paid for that, I paid for that, I paid for that. That you and I, because of Jesus Christ, we get to go free. Because the God of the universe stepped off of the bench and got on the stand in our place. And he took the punishment for our sin and freely gave us the reward for all of his righteousness and his goodness and his grace. That's the good news of the gospel. And now we go from fearing the judge and being afraid of our punishment to now lovingly fearing the judge and being in all of his goodness and his grace. We sing about this all the time, right? Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. It's God's grace that teaches us that, wow, we are in sin and we will rightfully be condemned. But then twas grace my fears relieved, right? That although we do stand condemned, Jesus Christ, and by his blood shed on the cross, his perfect life lived in our place, that we have no need to fear. If our faith is in Christ and in his finished work, that you and I, we don't stand condemned before God anymore. That we have been set free. So what do we need to do this morning? We have to confront the judgmental ways within us. And for all of us, that starts with taking a much harder look at our own sin. We've got to renew our minds by the reading of God's word, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we've got to constantly take a hard look at our own thoughts, our own behaviors. If you read the Psalms, David is praying this like every other Psalm. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any grievous way within me. Test me, O God, know my thoughts, know my mind. My life is ever before you and I wanna walk continually in your truth. Like just constantly praying to God, God, search me and know me. Show me if there's any bad motivation of the heart, any wicked or perverse thought. Just, God, reveal those things to me and let your grace flood in and remove those from me. This is the attitude that we have to have. Not being judgmental starts with taking a hard look at our own sin. And let me just say that this, that if the God of the universe doesn't define us by our worst sin, how dare we? define someone else by their sin and by their mistakes and by their regrets in worst moments. 
that you and I can stand before the one true authority and judge, and he does not define us. Our sin, the beauty of the gospel is our sin. If you're in Christ, it might describe you, but it does not define you. And how dare we, how arrogant do we have to be to stand in the place of the judge and start defining people by their choices and their sins? One of my professors in seminary um, told us to always keep a foot in the gospels. It's not, a, you know, it's not a sin if you don't. He just said a good principle for your Bible reading is as you read Old Testament, as you read some of the letters in the New Testament, always at least keep one foot in the gospels because it's, it's one thing to read the Old Testament and see that God described himself as merciful. It's another thing to read some of Peter's letters or Paul's and see what God's mercy has done for us. You know, 1 Peter 1, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection, all those kind of things. But it's another thing to read the gospels and read John chapter eight and see a woman caught in adultery, to see us caught in our sin and dragged before the public, naked, ashamed, thrown on the ground. And the scribes and the Pharisees had already condemned her. They had already determined she's guilty. And what does Jesus in John eight call the, the scribes and the Pharisees to do? He says, if any one of you has no sin, cast the first stone. They had glanced at their sin. They had examined hers. And what does Jesus call them to do? To meditate on and to think about their own sin. And he says, if any of you in here don't have any sin, go ahead, throw a stone. Stones start to hit the ground. People drop them and walk away. And then Jesus kneels down. And what does he say to the woman? Does no one condemn you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. That's grace. And when you and I remember that we are the woman, that we're the one caught in our sin and we're not condemned, then we will not condemn the people around us when they sin. But as a brother or sister in Christ, we will lovingly run to them to restore them and to help them and to aid them and to carry that burden with them for the glory of God and for the good of them and their relationships and their family. This is how we're called to respond. And the only way we will respond in this way is if we remember how God has responded to us in our sin. I'll close with this story. Um, John Wesley, um, incredible writer, incredible theologian way back in the day. Um, John Wesley tells this story of, um, he's at his church, they take up this offering for this need. Um, I think it was a family in need. And he's looking at this man who barely gives to um, the need. And he instantly John Wesley confesses, he judged him, he condemned him, he wrote him off, you're cheap, you're selfish, you only care about yourself, all those kind of things. And the man finds out that John Wesley had decided this stuff in his own heart about this man, and he comes to him, and he essentially says, hey, John, I know you don't know all the, the, you know, the story, I know you just saw you know, the works of my hands, you didn't see what was going on in my heart, and he says, um, before I came to know Christ, I was foolish with my money, I was selfish, and I borrowed so much money, and I owe so many people money. And now that I know Christ, he says, I'm living on parsnips and water, and I'm trying to be as frugal as I can so that I can pay my lenders back. And this is the quote that he says. Christ has made me an honest man, and so with all these debts to pay, I can give only a few offerings above my tithe. And then he says this, I must settle up with my worldly neighbors and show them what the grace of God can do in the heart of a man who was once dishonest. And John Wesley instantly falls down, repents, says he's sorry, and then begins to help the man pay off his debts. 
confesses that, hey, I made a judgment call. I didn't see your heart. I didn't see what you're doing. And this man is saying, I'm just desperately trying to show all these people that I once borrowed from that God can change someone like me and I wanna pay them back as quickly as possible. The watching world could care less if you go to them and tell them that you've added a belief system into your life. But the watching world will not help but notice when they see that God has transformed you from the inside out because of his grace. So church, let's be a people who stand before the God of the universe who deserve to be condemned and who've been set free. And then when other people wrong us, we will have nothing but grace to give them as we correct and rebuke and encourage and care for one another. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, I thank you for your word. Father, um, as much of heart surgery as this sermon is every single week, um, God, I thank you that one day I'm literally going to stand before you, before Christ, as the judge of heaven and earth. And my only plea is not that I figured it out. It's not that my sins were just specks compared to others. It's that, yes, I am a wretch. And my only plea is the shed blood of Christ for me. So God, when I live in a posture like that, when I remember that, when I remind myself of that gospel, who am I to be judgmental or to condemn someone else? God, help us to be a people that look to you daily and therefore see our inadequacies, God, and your grace can rush in. And then we can be people who administer grace all throughout our days. But God, in response to your mercy that triumphs over judgment. God, we lift our hands, we give you praise, and I pray that if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, they've never experienced the grace of God, they've never experienced Jesus Christ taking the stand in their place, and his innocence being the payment for us to go free. God, I pray that they would do that today, that they would stop one of us, that they would have a conversation. God, that they would put their faith in your finished work. God, we worship you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.